My first business ventures consisted of a pair of twin calves that I raised, and later to bring home on a stormy winter day a tiny lamb given to me by a farmer, which, in time, together with a few others purchased later, expanded into a flock of about forty sheep. Both ventures were failures, however, from a financial point of view. But the failures were nothing compared with the collapse of the innumerable air castles which had depended upon the result of these speculations. One day I found a purse containing about forty dollars, an immense sum at that time to me. In the purse were other papers showing me plainly who the owner was. I know that I hesitated, but only for a moment, and having made up my mind, could not too soon return it to its owner. And because I had hesitated, was adverse to receiving the reward offered me. When I was about nineteen years of age, the preceding years having been filled in for the most part, with six to nine months each year of preparatory studies, and the balance of time devoted to work and teaching. I was prepared to enter the Dartmouth College, but instead of doing so, I decided to commence a medical course at once, and, with this object in view, I matriculated at the University of Vermont at Burlington, where I remained one college year, deciding, before it had expired, to complete my course at some larger college, and the following September found me at Ann Arbor, Michigan. After having paid my college fees, bought my books, and other articles necessary for my second year in college, I found myself hundreds of miles away from friends and relatives, and with about sixty dollars in money with nine months of hard study before me, allowing but little time for outside work if I wished to keep up in my studies with the other members of my class. About this time I first became acquainted with a Canadian, a fellow student, and from then until the time of his death, he was one of the very few intimate friends I have ever allowed myself. The limits of this book will not allow me to write the many quaint and some ghastly experiences of our medical education were I otherwise disposed to do so. Suffice it to say that they stopped far short of desecration of country graveyards, as has been repeatedly charged as it is a well-known fact that in the state of Michigan all the material necessary for dissection work is legitimately supplied by the state. At the end of my junior year, I entered into an agreement with a fluent representative of a Chicago firm to spend my vacation in the northwest portion of Illinois, representing his firm as a book agent. In this venture, I committed the first really dishonest act of my life. The firm, as well as the book itself, from the sale of which I had been assured I could earn hundreds of dollars during my vacation, was a fraud, and after the most strenuous efforts, having succeeded in selling a sufficient number to defray my expenses and pay my return fare to Ann Arbor, I came back without making a settlement with the firm there, and for the remainder of my vacation earned what money I could in and about the college city. I could hardly count my western trip a failure, however, for I had seen Chicago. The remainder of my medical course differed very little from the first two years, filled perhaps more completely with hard work and study, and almost wholly devoid of pleasure and recreation. At last, however, in June 1884, our examinations were passed, our suspense was ended, and I left Ann Arbor with my diploma a good theoretical knowledge of medicine, 
but with no practical knowledge of life and business. After taking a vacation of less than one week in my old New Hampshire home, I went to Portland, Maine, and engaged with a large business firm of that city to represent them in northern New York in the sale of their products. My prime object being to find some favorable location in this way where I could become a practitioner. Such an opening was not easily found, however, and I accepted a winter school to teach at Moore's Forks, New Jersey, and later opened an office in that village. Here I stayed for one year doing good and conscientious work, for which I received plenty of gratitude, but little or no money. And in the fall of 1885, starvation was staring me in the face, and finally I was forced to go to sell first one and then the last of my two horses. And having done this, I resolved to go elsewhere before all of my means were again exhausted. During my long years there in New York, I had abundant time to work out the details of a scheme that my university friend, before referred to, and myself had talked over during our hungry college days as a possible last resort in case our medical practice proved a failure. And from certain letters I had received from him, I judged that he, too, had not found all his hardships at an end upon receiving his diploma. I therefore went to where he was located, and found that though his experience had been less disheartening than my own, it had from a pecuniary standpoint been far from successful. During this visit we carefully planned the following method of obtaining money. At some future date, a man whom my friend knew and could trust, who then carried considerable life insurance, was to increase the same so that the total amount carried should be $40,000. And as he was a man of moderate circumstances, he was to have it understood that some sudden danger he had escaped, a runaway accident, had impelled him to more fully protect his family in the future. Later, he should become addicted to drink and while temporarily insane from its use, should, as it would appear afterwards, kill his wife and child. In reality, they were to go to the extreme west and await his arrival there at a later date. Suddenly the husband was to disappear, and some months later a body badly decomposed and dressed in the clothing he was known to wear was to be found, and with a statement to the effect that while in a drunken rage he had killed his family and had shipped their dismembered bodies to two separate and distant warehouses to conceal the crime, first having partially preserved the remains by placing them in strong brine. That he did not care to live longer, and that his property and insurance should pass to a relative whom he was to designate in this letter. At the proper time he was to join his family in the West and remain there permanently, the relative collecting the insurance, a part of which was to be sent to him, a part to be retained by the relative, and the remainder to be divided between us. This scheme called for a considerable amount of material, no less than three bodies, in fact. This difficulty was easily overcome, however, so long as it was supposed that they were needed for experimental purposes but no doctor could call for three bodies at one time without exciting suspicion. And so it was arranged that I was to go to Chicago for the winter, and sometime during the intervening months we should both contribute toward the necessary supply. 
I reached Chicago in November 1885, but finding it difficult to obtain satisfactory employment, I went to Minneapolis, where I spent the winter in a drug store as a clerk. Meanwhile, my friend had promptly obtained his portion and placed it in the storage in Delaware, from which place it was shipped to me later in Chicago. I remained in Minneapolis until May 1886, when I returned to Chicago. My own life I had insured meantime for $20,000, which, at a later date, I intended to realize upon. I had prior to this time made arrangements to furnish my portion of the material. After reaching Chicago, certain changes in my plans called me hastily to New York City, and I decided to take a part of the material there and leave the balance in a Chicago warehouse. This necessitated the repacking of the same, and to accomplish this I went to a hotel, May 1886, where I registered under an assumed name and occupied a room and had the package, which had been shipped from Detroit, taken there, and carefully removing the carpet from one portion of the room, I divided the material into two packages. In doing this, the floor became discolored. Later, one of these packages was placed in the Fidelity Storage Warehouse in Chicago, and the other I took with me to New York and placed it in a safe place. Upon my trip from Chicago to New York, I read two accounts of the detection of crime connected with this class of work, and for the first time I realized how well organized and well prepared the leading insurance companies were to detect and punish this kind of fraud. And this, together with a letter I received upon reaching my destination and the sudden death of my friend, caused all to be abandoned. Soon after leaving New York, I came to Philadelphia, where I sought employment in some drug store where I could hope to become either a partner or an owner. Not finding such an opportunity at once, I took a situation as a keeper in the Norristown Asylum. This was my first experience with insane persons, and so terrible was it that for years afterwards, even now sometimes, I see their faces in my sleep. Fortunately, within a few days after entering the asylum, I received word that I could obtain different employment in a drugstore on Columbia Avenue, which I at once accepted. About July 1st, one afternoon, a child entered the store and exclaimed, I want a doctor. The medicine we got here this morning has killed my brother or sister. I could remember of no sale that morning corresponding to the one she hastily described, but I made sure that a physician was at once sent to the house, and having done this, I hastily wrote a note to my employer, stating the nature of the trouble, and left the city immediately for Chicago. And it was not until nine years later that I knew the result of the case. Later, when it became necessary to disprove the alarming statements that were made relative to various persons having been killed at 701 63rd Street, I placed in the proper authorities' hands a full collection of documentary evidence consisting of railroad and storage warehouse receipts, letters, references, and dates sufficient to show the truthfulness of my statements. Upon reaching Chicago, I found I could obtain no employment as a druggist until I had passed an examination at Springfield, Illinois, and when I went there for that purpose, I gave my name as H. H. Holmes 
and under this name I have since done most of my business. Later, in July 1886, I went to 701 63rd Street, Chicago, where I found a small store owned by a physician who, owing to ill health, wished to sell badly. A little later I bought it, paying for it for the most part with money secured by mortgaging the stock and fixtures, agreeing to repay this loan at the rate of $100 per month. My trade was good, and for the first time in my life I was established in a business that was satisfactory to me. But very soon my landlord, seeing that I was prospering well, made me aware that my rent would be increased, and to protect myself I was forced to purchase at a great expense the vacant property opposite the location I then occupied, and to erect a building thereon. Here my real troubles commenced. The expense incurred was wholly beyond the earning capacity of my business, and for the next few years I was obliged to plunge deeply in debt in every direction, and, worse than this, when these debts became due, if unable to meet them, to resort to all means of procuring a stay or evading them altogether. At last there came a day when Thomas Fallon, a constable, together with a lawyer named Sanforth, both of Chicago, came to my store to attach the same to satisfy the claim of some impatient creditor. And during the appraisal of the goods, they came and asked me the contents of two small barrels. I gave them some misleading answer, and bringing out other goods to attract their attention, they were passed for the time being. They were the two packages I had arranged more than a year before at a certain hotel, and which had been removed from the storehouses in Chicago and New York, first to my former store, and later to the new one. As soon as possible after this attachment took place, I resolved to permanently dispose of these packages, and to do so, I opened the smaller of them and commenced its destruction by burning in a large furnace, and then in the basement. The experience was so unpleasant, owing to the terrible odor produced, that I did not think it safe to destroy more of it in the same way, and therefore buried the remainder of that package, as well as the fragments that were partially burned, in the places where they have lately been found. The other package was removed, unopened from the building, and so disposed of that it was hardly probable it will ever be found, and I do not feel called upon to bring it forth as it would only serve to add more newspaper notoriety to the case. If, however, my life is ever jeopardized, or my other statements discredited owing to want of additional proof in this matter, I shall at once cause it to be produced, and my doing so will result in showing that the portions therein contained are parts of the two bodies already found, and, more important still, that the package thus brought to light has necessarily occupied its present location for nearly seven years. This will be corroborated by documentary evidence, freight, express and warehouse receipts, letters, etc., already in the hands of the authorities, together with evidence from workmen, if still alive and to be found. End of Section 3